You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 168 is Clive Nolan. He got his professional start by joining his friend Nick Barrett's band Pendragon in 1986 as their keyboardist. He's played on 10 albums with them, but he's also been a very prolific songwriter. You're right now listening to The Key, the closing track from The Key Part 1, The Prophecy, by a band called Strangers on a Train that he had with singer Tracy Hitchings. He did two albums with them, as he will tell us in a minute. He led his own band as front guy and keyboardist Shadowland, putting out four albums since 1990. That sort of morphed to a band called Arena that he founded in 1995 but does not sing for, though he writes all the lyrics. They put out nine albums, plus some EPs, and as you'll hear, he's written some musicals and put out some other solo albums and collaborations, often creating works that are in some way theatrical, have some sort of plot. Today we're going to be discussing Dragonfire from his latest solo album, Song of the Wildlands 2021, which is the story of Beowulf, and Silent Words from one of those musicals, King's Ransom 2017, and The Tinderbox by Arena from their album The Seventh Degree of Separation 2011. We'll close by listening to A Descent into Madness by Clive Nolan and Oliver Wakeman from their 2021 album Dark Fables. To get a better handle on all these many things Clive has been involved with, go to clivenolan.net. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed, or better yet, get the ad-free feed at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. It only takes a very small recurring donation, and you can know that you're helping this show continue to exist. Here we go. I will have played a little bit of The Key by Strangers on a Train from The Key Part 1 Prophecy 1990 to I wanted to put something early career, but then I did the math and you were already 30 by this time. So what what were you doing in the 80s just to, to get us started oh, here? Wasting a lot of time playing computer games. Yeah, I was doing music, but uh, my big sort of opportunities in terms of being a writer started mm-hmm. in my sort of late 20s. I, I had to sort of tread water. I mean, I was writing all the time. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, in those days, it was all about going around the record labels, trying to get a record deal and nobody would touch us with a barge pole. And then... Well, I can't think of the order of events. I would have just about joined Pendragon at that stage. I was starting to build up some credibility as a keyboard player, and that gave me the opportunity to sort of springboard into sort of being taken seriously as a writer. But at that stage, I was, you know, I'd written an awful lot of material. So I was writing busily for the next few years based on what I'd done in the sort of years leading up to that. So we're going to get pretty quickly to the new thing, Song of the Wildlands, your last solo album. Can we get a little picture of the progression? So I know, you know, you were, you joined your friend's brand as the keyboardist, but then you had your own band where you were also the keyboardist, but also the band leader around the same time or a few years later. It seems like you were always running multiple projects. Is that right? Yeah, I did a lot of stuff. I mean, in, in those early days, particularly, the only way to earn any money at all was to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, because none of it paid particularly well, but. Yeah, so I mean, the sort of the big band delineation, the very first band I did was called Sleepwalker, and that was kind of formed at school. And I didn't even know what progressive rock was then, but people just told me what we were doing was a bit like progressive rock. And that sort of kind of continued for a while and and into the time when I was at university. Then I got a bit sick and tired of the whole band thing, and we went for a thing called The Cast, which was much more kind of electro, lots of learning about sequencers and drum machines Mm. and all that kind of stuff. And we did that for a while. And then that emerged into the first band, which I consider more seriously, which is called Shadowland. And Shadowland, I was the singer, and I did all the keyboards, and I wrote pretty much all the music, Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of exceptions. 
So that was running along. And then I joined Pendragon because Nick Barrett, the kind of main man in Pendragon, I'd gone to school with him and I met him when I was about four years old. So I'd known him a very long time. And our paths kind of converged at a certain point in time. And so I ended up doing that. And then Shadowland eventually sort of, it hadn't actually, I mean, technically, we've never split up or anything, but it just sort of slowed down. And then I met Nick Coinster from Marillion and we formed Arena. So then basically I had Arena and Pendragon working sort of together. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much how it's been with the bands. And then alongside all of that were all the kind of projects that I did. And I gradually, about 10 years ago, I started moving into the world of musicals and such like as well. So yeah, interesting and varied. So, right, we have three musical theater projects, but now this solo album, and it's not the first one that's like this, is basically a musical, but it's a solo album. You know, it's got a plot, it's got narration, it's got all the components, but you don't have to actually stage it. If you want to be arty about it, it's basically an oratorio, mm-hmm. a, a secular oratorio. That's how I thought of it. It was never intended to be staged. It's, it's you've got your sort of lead, your, your main singers, you've got your choir, you've got your orchestra. And in this particular case, you've got your kind of layer of these, what I call Viking instruments. To, and, and of course, a narrator, maybe that's an added extra, but it was always intended to be a concert piece, not a musical piece. Well, yeah. So this Song of the Wildlands, so this is the story of Beowulf, and it's from the beginning to the end. And the song that you had picked, Dragonfire, is toward the end. It is not related to Grendel. It is not the film where the dragon was actually Grendel's mother coming, you know, no, 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 that's some bastardization of, uh, or no, sorry, it was the child of Grendel, so it was actually the child of Beowulf that he's fighting as the dragon. None of that Oedipal stuff here. We've got the traditional, just beating... The, the original saga, yeah. yeah. Can you give us a little orientation before we hear the song in full? Well, I mean, the Beowulf saga, I decided a while ago I wanted to do a kind of, for want of a better description, a Viking album, because I... I was sort of involved a lot, I still am, with a group of people in Norway. So I was kind of getting interested in the kind of music that was coming out of there. And there's all these kind of Viking bands, and that really interested me. So I thought, well, this would be great. But I didn't want to get sort of accused of cultural appropriation or anything. So it occurred to me that Beowulf, first of all, it's the oldest English written poem in existence, a piece of literature in existence. And it's also, of course, it's an English story, but it's about a Viking. So it seemed to me to be the perfect sort of balance. And Beowulf is a saga. I mean, if you read the full, well, there were a lot of great translations. Even Tolkien did a translation of uh, Beowulf. And it'll take you about, I don't know, four hours or so to read the whole thing. And, you know, Beowulf did fight Grendel. We all know that, thanks to Marillion and various other things. But, you know, he did other things as well. And he did indeed fight a dragon towards the end of his life. That was about 50 years later after fighting Grendel. But, you know, he was a hero. He was the best of the heroes as far as our writer was concerned. And he had many adventures. So I've tried to reflect that on a much bigger scale with the album that I've done. This is not like a rehash of the Grendel bit. When a runaway slave stole a cup from the dragon's lair, the creature awoke from its hundred-year sleep and wreaked fiery retribution upon the towns of Yeekland. Beowulf once more took up a sword and a solid iron shield as he prepared for what he knew would be his final battle. Taking eleven warriors with him, but instructing them to wait outside, Beowulf entered the lair and called for the dragon.
fight for life As dragons fire rings far and wide My blade, it fails to pierce its skin This armor plated hide My iron shield is all I have To battle with this spawn of hell To stay alive one moment more And so to crack its shell Do you think of the narration as the thing between the songs or is actually part of the song? I guess just in terms of a good question. I suppose it's, I don't think it's part of the song. It's part of the whole. I thought it would be a great idea to set the chorus work in Anglo-Saxon, in Old English. So that's what I did. So initially what I did is I wrote the chorus when I was writing sort of the basic ideas. I wrote it almost like a nonsense language just so I could do demos myself. Mm -hmm. So I worked out the kind of vocal lines and the rhythms of the vocal. And I found myself, I was lucky to find myself a, a medieval expert 
um, who was able to translate in and out of Anglo-Saxon, you know, into Anglo-Saxon, back out again. And he very kindly helped me to kind of turn it into proper Anglo-Saxon. And then he gave me a phonetic version so that the singers could all just read the words. Otherwise, we'd be completely lost. But I was aware that by having that going on and then having our main singers singing kind of rather episodically, that what we probably needed was the narration to give a cohesive feel to understanding what the story was about. So it is a very integral part of the whole, and it is part of the songs, really. I mean, because it allows us to understand exactly what's happening and when. And when we get to the singing, and it's a fairly sort of operatic style, but the particular phrasing, with sword and shield, I fight for life as dragon's fire rains far and wide. Like, were you using the poem, the style of the poem, as a model for your word choices, or was it just you're telling the story with your own voice? A little bit of both. I had a translation of, you know, my version of the what I wanted for the whole poem, and I, I kept reading through it. And so some of the lyric or some of the narration would quote little bits of, mm-hmm. of, you know, directly from the story. Some of it, I just wanted to give it that sort of style, slightly stilted style of how people would have, well, they wouldn't have talked like that, but you know what I mean, to give it the sort of flavor. So it's, it's a little bit of both. Do you remember offhand what the chorus, like either it's meaning or it's phonetic, e- either one? <laughs> They're busy singing about this dragon is kind of like the killer of men and all powerful and all the rest of it. And rains, it's all about fire raining down. There's a lot of that sort of stuff going on. But I, you know, I, I must be honest, it's been a while since I've <laughs> listened to the lyrics. So in terms of the foley here, I mean, even at the very beginning, uh, you've got this horns with sort of, is it dragony sounds? Like, how are you, how are you deciding on that you're being your own Foley artist here, that there's a movie going on and you're going to, are you using digital effects? Are you just kind of smushing stuff around near the mic? What's your strategy? No, I, I actually, I searched all over the place. I, I mean, I really, I didn't. Some of it I sort of found online. Some of it I created myself. Some of it, there's, there's a wonderful set of sound effect collections done by a company called Boom. They are the sort of things you're going to hear in movies and TV and whatever. They had a whole collection of fantasy creatures. For the dragon, I was literally using their interpretation of the sort of dragon noises, which is a kind of a distortion of a lion, Okay, amongst other things, but sort of drawn out and kind of treated in all sorts of ways. I collect sound effects wherever I can find them that work until it convinces me that it feels right. So when you need like the sound of smoke, (laughs) which is not something that makes us about this sort of shimmery we're just gonna <laughs> that's right but yes exactly you you find something that's got a, maybe a rush of air or ah. something it might kind of go or a swirling sort of like a darker sound that sort of like swirls around in the background of the music i mean i i think you know sound effects i i use a lot even in like arena and whatever as a kind of an added element to the music sure. it's part of the music as far as i'm concerned when it gets going about a minute in this rollicking six eight I know it's actually we're using that in this song and it comes back in the second song we're going to talk about also from a stage musical. What is there about that particular like this is the way a way rather than sort of a 4-4 rock thing or something that would maybe sound cheesier, you know, more like a rock opera. But this is has this, I don't know, this rolling gate to it. Any thoughts on your choice of when you're going to use that and not using that too often? <laughs> Yes, you've got to choose your moments, but it, it's got its own momentum. It kind of drags you along with it. That's a It's sort of, it's quite infectious. You kind of roll with it almost and it, it achieves what you're trying to do. But you're absolutely right. You've got to be careful you don't end up 
soaking a whole album with that sort of thing. It's kind of a, a thing you've got to choose your moment, but it's got a lot of its own energy about it. I think six, eight, a very useful time signature. You're... Is that a patch? There, you know, is that a sequence you're creating? Or with sword and shield, I fight for life as dragons fire No, it's all orchestrated, isn't okay. it? That stuff. I mean, it's yeah. I just do the orchestration myself and how I sort of hear it in my head, and then create it. I've got a lot of orchestral sounds that I make use of. Obviously, you know, in the absence of having a real orchestra, and I spend a lot of time trying to get that orchestration to sound as as real as I can get it. And all this kind of energetic, I always think of them as John Williams strings. It's all that really fast rolling stuff that can happen. But uh, yeah, that's all all created for the job. If it's in a John Williams setting, there's not lyrics over it. But here is the part where it's actually the vocal is coming back with his big operatic thing. But he has to kind of fight with this rolling, you know, what should be huge enough to take up plenty of space. For some reason, they don't actually conflict like maybe it's just you've jacked up the volume of the lyric enough that there's no well it's a little bit i mean obviously mixing is important but it's, it's almost got that sort of on a simpler scale it's got it's like a wagnerian thing that you know the orchestra is very restless and then on top of that you lay the vocal but the vocalist isn't he's not competing with the pace he's only competing for the space of the line mm-hmm. his lines da, da, de, 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 you know his lines are slower everything else is so it, there will be room for both really well, and it also helps in that that you you have this answered with what sounds like finger symbols as opposed to giant. So it's cling as opposed to crash, like this, you know, something that would push the singer off the stage. <laughs> to stay alive one moment more, and so to crack its shell. Yeah, I think in that one I used a, as a percussion instrument, I was using uh, like a sword clash. Okay. Oh, I see. So it's kind of it's a big and a small sound in a way. That's uh, that works quite well. When you have the sort of climax of the song, this ancient beast must die. So all the music stops, and he's singing by himself, and you echo that. Not embrace defeat. This ancient beast must die. Any sort of thoughts on choreographing that moment? Well, I can imagine it as a nice lighting moment. That's for sure. I can imagine it as quite a sort of, it will be a very, uh, hopefully a very dramatic moment within the concert because everything stops and he just kind of got this voice, die, die, die. So, yeah, I mean, the whole idea of doing Song of the Wildlands was to produce something that, in, you know, was epic, epic in style. It's an epic story. I wanted the music to sound epic and sort of big and spacious and all the rest of it. So I'm, I'm hoping that's what it achieved anyway. And is it hard in this day and age to, if you're thinking Wagner, then it has the requisite epic scale. However, you could have also done exactly this thing for video game music, say, or, you know, that that's kind of the more common output of this kind of adventure stuff like that. Is that you kind of need to stifle those associations or it just doesn't matter? That's not on your mind. I didn't even think (laughs) about it, to be honest. I mean, I just had an end result in my head that Ah. I wanted to produce. I think if you were going to go down the, um, yeah, like you say, video games or something, uh, and they, they can be quite sort of epic sounds, but there is always something a bit more boxy about the whole thing anyway. I don't know. I can't describe it. More electronic. Well, uh, and, yeah, so. it probably has something to do. I mean, I guess this is an ever-changing thing, but even just the method of delivery, that if you're not concentrated on audio, anyway, the, the compression algorithms or whatever, 
what is the limit? Like, are you doing soundtracks? Have you done soundtracks to film or anything like that? Or you're really set on things that you craft from scratch? Not so long ago, I did a, a soundtrack to a movie maker's film. He was doing a kind of a, what would you call it? A violent thriller. Let's go with that. Mm. It's got like a home invasion. Funnily enough, he's in the other room right now visiting because we're talking about another film. But basically, I did the music for that. And he, he just said to me, well, I kind of want it a bit like Purge. That was my sort of start of a 10. Okay. So we kind of, you know, he wanted the sort of electronic loops and quite harsh sounds and what have you. So that's a film called Election Night, which I think will will come to you via Netflix at some point in the near future. But um, so I've done a little bit, but not a lot more. I'd like to do more because I, I do like doing that kind of stuff. I like painting pictures. Let's move to this, something that then was fully realized, or has it been yet, King's Ransom, as a stage musical? I know that you did the album in 2017, and then, so how long is, what is the process from, like, is the album basically the demos, and then you get all these people together, and then, so it was 2020, or do that, was it pandemic interfered with? <laughs> Let me ask that. No, we just, we did manage to do some performances okay. of King's Ransom. I mean, King's Ransom was the second of three musicals based around the whole alchemy thing. Alchemy was the first, King's Ransom's the second, The Mortal Light is the third, which I'm, I've written, but I'm, I'm out actually waiting to finish recording because of the move and everything. Mm-hmm. I always say, well, I mean, alchemy took me probably the best part of two years to write and record. I think, generally speaking, I think in terms of two years, it's actually alchemy took me the best part of two years to write, if I remember rightly. But um, King's Ransom, I think I wrote in about a year. And uh, The Mortal Light, I think I wrote in about six months. So I'm getting better. And it's a musical. I mean, it's, it's a much bigger project, really. It's to think of it like writing two albums. It's, a t- you know, it's two hours of music. It's all got to tie together. You've got to have themes that run through the whole thing. It's not just a set of random songs. You've got to have sort of things that tie the whole thing together stylistically. The album that I made of King's Ransom used most of the singers that I used on stage when I did the performance as well. You can't always have everybody, but, uh, you know, you start off with one cast. It's a, it's a constantly developing thing. And a musical should be an organically developing thing as well. So you change bits as you go once it's actually been on stage. I must admit, I'm, I'm fascinated by the world of musicals. I, I do like them. And I've enjoyed very much doing the alchemy thing and the King's Ransom. And I'm looking forward to doing the Mortal Light, to recording it. And then obviously at some point, trying to get it on stage. There was a pandemic in the way. I did slow us down a bit, but you know. The song you picked from King's Ransom was uh, Silent Words, so we get a, a duet here, and neither of these voices is you, right? And the first song wasn't you singing either? Actually, yeah. Originally, when I do the demos for these musicals, I usually sing all the parts, including the sopranos. It's quite horrendous. <laughs> and I, unfortunately, the only people who hear those things are the people I send, you know, I send the song to Gemma, for example, the soprano, and say, well, this is my attempt to show you what I'm doing. In Silent Words, it's a duet between King and Eva. So basically, that would be me singing the male part okay. and Gemma singing uh, the soprano. What is going on in the story at this point, just so folks... In King's Ransom, we explore the relationship between Professor King and Eva, who is his kind of assistant. In many ways, she's the warrior, really. He's the sort of brains, but he wouldn't be able to protect himself in any particular way. So they have a relationship or rather she's devoted to him and, and he feels a great deal for her. But again, it's one of those things, typically sort of old fashioned Victorian style. It's the unsaid words. Mm-hmm. And that, that's exactly what this song is about. They kind of wish each other a good night after one particular adventure in, in the story. 
and King almost, he sort of says, oh, Eva, I, um, yeah, well, you did a really good job. Thank you. Night. And, and sort of wanders off. And then he kind of kicks himself. And uh, he starts singing about the fact that, you know, the moment he sort of wants to say something to a woman, he turns into a complete clown and he can't get his words out and all the rest of it. If it was a cinema thing, the camera would widen out and you see Eva in a completely different room and a completely different place, kind of bemoaning a very similar thing. And so it, it's two people in different locations, but it's a, it's a joined duet. I suggest that sleep is the best course of action until Tom returns. True enough. There is nothing we can do at the moment. Good night. It will be hard to sleep, but I will try. Um, Eva? Yes? I, uh, you, that is to say, you did well tonight. Thank you. Good night, Professor. <sighs> you did well tonight. What am I saying? It's hard to tell a woman what the heart may truly mean. Every time I try to speak, the words just simply freeze. A poet may wax lyrical about such fond desires, but I just turn to stone when I should be. Breathing fire Just when I decide it's time My blood begins to race A clown appears instead of me To fall upon his face Well, I do not know how I could say With honeyed eloquence If you were gone Then my life would have no sense. Anger, fury, this is a storm I can ride in my sleep. Panic, nightmares, these are the seeds that I know I can reap. Thrown together by ripples of fate, both redeemed when it all seemed too late. Thrown together and both of us raised to the sky Peril, danger This is a state I'm familiar with Darkness and shadows Have no effect on my pulse or my breath Then you walk into Yeah.
When all such cares are lost to fate Nice to have this as comparison. That is another rollicking six eight. Not that you do that on, on yeah, all those, that's, uh, but with a lot of. Uh, so, to say a little about how you how you structure this. I mean, are you assume sort of writing the words first and then deciding how? Because in terms of what is even the verse, what is even the chorus? How many times is the chorus going to come back? There's it's identifiably song like, but you know, it's sprawling over six minutes. In my process of writing a musical, it needs to be go back to the beginning. It starts off with me trying to create a story. And what I tend to do is I, you know, obviously I come up with an, a basic idea and then I just start writing notes. And eventually that goes to where I start sticking little post-it notes. I've got this, well, I had, I've moved now, but I've got these, uh, I had these two sort of big cupboard doors. So what I used to do is stick post-it notes on the door gradually as I say, okay, what happens next is, uh, I don't know, somebody gets shot. But that has to happen before that. And I can move them around like puzzle pieces, different aspects, different moments, different set pieces that would work within this story. And eventually I start to get something that works as a flow of a story. And then I go back to the computer or the pen and paper, whatever, and I then turn all that into a flowing sort of narrative story. Once I've got that, I kind of go back to the post-it notes and I, I turn it into the episodes of each. So I gradually split it into scenes and songs. You know, so the moment where King jumps off a cliff, well, that's got to be a song. So basically, I can sort of, that's in a, a moment, so it becomes a post-it note. So then I have, a, I kind of almost have like a graph of the whole musical. That's the point. And only at that point am I, do I feel ready to start writing music. If I can't visualize it, I can't write it. So once I've got the stage play, if you want, done, mm-hmm. then I, what I tend to do, because, uh, you know, I'm just human, I cherry pick. So I look at things, well, yeah, that looks like an awkward one. I don't think I want to try that one. But let's do the big chorus where they're singing about gold or something. So I'll pick that one and then I'll just turn around and start to create the music. And I know what I'm aiming for because I know in that particular moment in the musical, King has, I don't know, thrown some coins on the ground. I'm telling you these things. He doesn't do any of these things, but I'm just giving you examples. Sure. And everyone's singing about it. And so I, I kind of know where I'm headed. And what will happen is I, I will start to create the music but as I'm creating the music, I will also start to create the lyric. And they do, they sort of come a little bit together sometimes, particularly the chorus. So if I get a hook line, that's the bit that I'll be kind of in my head. And then once the music's kind of properly structured, I will then sit back and write the proper lyrics and get it all in place. And once I start writing the lyrics, then I might well adjust the music again because I need to say a little bit more or a little bit less. Or I might well just say something slightly different in the middle or whatever. So that will kind of affect and the two work together. I've got my lyricist hat on and my musician's hat on. They kind of keep swapping. And eventually I'll craft the the song in question. And it gets harder because after the cherry picking happens, gradually you get to the tough songs. 
the ones that have to get you from one point in the story to another point in the story. And by then you're looking at it thinking, because when you start writing a musical, my first fear is, God, how am I going to write two hours of music? But not long after that, I'm usually worried about how am I going to keep it down to two hours? You realize you've got three minutes to get from one point in the story to another, and you've got to work out how to do that, or you've got to cut something else. It's an interesting process. I mean, this song seems like a more typical musical song in that it does not have to accomplish anything plot-wise, except maybe Correct. that these characters, yeah, they, these characters maybe realize more acutely their situation. That's the progress that they get more dramatic through the song. But yes. otherwise, this is the snapshot of their their feelings at that moment. Yes, it's intended to really let the audience understand the full impact of what's going on in their minds. I think. With the background, I guess, of whatever this adventure, I wasn't clear. It doesn't totally matter what's going on in the story right before here, but they're referring to, you know, how fearless and how much conflict they're in. You know, it's not all just referring to their fear and conflict with relationships, or is that the implication that you're sort of comparing the adventure of the, yeah. Well, in in that song, what they're singing about, everything comes back down. To the, you know, he sort of says, Oh, I can deal with this and I can do that, and I don't mind facing a dragon and a this, that, and the other. But when it comes to trying to, you know, do something as simple as talk about love, I can't do it, sort of thing. So it all comes back down to the fact that they are understanding how they feel, mm-hmm. facing their feelings, if you like. But yes, they cover a lot, they cover quite a wide v- a variety of, sort of issues around it. Yeah. Hey, it's time for some sponsor talk. I would like to introduce the Nebbia by Moen Quattro Showerhead by Nebbia. Quattro is the most affordable shower yet from Nebbia, the technological innovators in the world of showering, backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook and designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. Their breakthrough work have developed a superior shower experience that saves water. The Quattro has four spray modes, two powerful high-pressure spray modes in addition to the popular Nebbia Spa spray, I go for the spa thing. I like the way that it really is misty and you put your face right in it and get all misty. My daughter, who was visiting from college, also used this, preferred the hard spray that gives you the feeling of a high-pressure massage. And when I wash my dog with it, because it has the hose that lets you pull it down off of its uh, magnetic base, well, I use the super saver mode. That's ideal for young kids, pets, and sensitive skin. So many choices, you could just switch it every five seconds while you're showering, just to confuse your skin. And you know what else was fun? Uh, Installing this. It was super easy, a three-minute process, easy as changing a light bulb. All the modes save 40 to 50% of the water compared to a traditional shower. And while you're shopping at Nebbia, you can also check out their other sustainable bathroom accessories, such as the new quick dry earth mat, which they also sent me one of. It is crazy. You just, you step on it. You don't even have to dry it. It just dries by itself in minutes. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $199 exclusively on Nebbia.com. Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, that's Nebbia.com slash N-E-M, N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M for Naked League Exam Music to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with that code N-E-M. I would also like to tell you about a thing called Masterclass. It is something you can access through virtually any digital device. And in your little digital device, they have captured many of the greatest minds on Earth. You can learn about purposeful communication from George Stephanopoulos, poetic thinking from Joy Harjo, 
Science and Problem Solving from Bill Nye, Creating Change from Malala, Philosophy from Cornell West, and these are just the new classes. I'm not even going to run through the litany of super celebrities that are on here. I do want to focus on one new class from a musician, NASA's Hip Hop Storytelling, which in addition to telling me a lot more about a form of music that I don't spend a lot of time with, he is all about universal songwriting challenges, using poetic techniques and lyrics, beat timing and rhythmic patterns, how to tell your life story through music, and the music industry itself. So that course is worth your price of admission alone. And it's just one of over a hundred things you will get for you to dip into, for you to share with your family. And each of these courses, well, they have other listeners that you can talk about things with. They have materials you can download to supplement what you're hearing. You can do them as audio. You can do them as video. You can play them at different speeds, really binge on a whole course or just skip around little bits of different ones. It really adapts to what you are prepared to do, however deep you want to go. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash NEM now. That's masterclass.com slash NEM for 15% off masterclass. These orchestrations, and I didn't really even ask you about the last one, like, are you bringing in actual strings or is this just really nice patches with you playing everything? It's me doing all the orchestrations, but in the musicals, what I do and I often do this, actually, but I bring in a few real instruments. So, for example, there's a real violinist uh, mm-hmm. who makes some appearances here and there in Alchemy and in uh, King's Ransom. There's a horn player and an oboe player, and they just bring out a little bit of reality into the kind of programming, and that really helps. So a lot of this song, you know, you start over with just kind of thick string keyboard chords, but then something sort of peeks out, like whether it's a French horn sound, maybe this is just an overdub, or over the, uh, well, I do not know how I could say with honeyed eloquence, there's some kind of clarinet or something, or that's just a synth patch. It's something that kind of gradually peeks out and then follows the melody around a little. Well, I do not know how I could say with honeyed eloquence if you were gone, then my life would have no there's very little keyboards in any of this. Yeah, it could be clarinet. I've got to be honest, again, I, I can't recall absolutely right now. But there were, I mean, it would all be orchestrated. You would have had that very rich, quite low string sounds to kind of give you that yeah. kind of very weighty, effectively a weighty pad, but with, you know, strings. And then out of that certain kind of key lines, it would follow the singing. Could be oboe, could be clarinet. I, I don't honestly know. But yeah, it would be something going on like that. Baby flute. There's actual drum kit in parts of this, right? But then there's also kind of timpani and yes there's orchestral percussion and then there's the drum kits as well yeah yeah so any thoughts about sort of how to manage those together in this case in the musicals it's a guy called scott hyam he was uh, in pendragon as well for a while and he also plays on the wildland albums and what i tend to do is i when i do the demos i do all the percussion work and i work out what i want and i know what the thrust of the song's got to do and it's only at that point, and I will do kind of like a program drum thing to kind of put across what I'm looking for. And then what I tend to say to Scott is, well, look, this track is very driven by the timpani and the snare drum. So I need you to kind of not get in the way of that. And that's what he'll do. He'll back off or stay out of the way of. And that particularly actually going back to Wildlands is something he had to do 
which was quite tricky because there's all this loads and loads of percussion battering away. And to add loads of drums on top would have just muddied the water. So he had to keep a very open beat, really, you know, lay down the first and the third sort of thing and keep it quite open. And occasionally I said, okay, you're good to go on this bit. And, you know, he could sort of let rip a bit more. Same thing with the musicals, really. He's aware of his surroundings and he has to kind of work around them, provide a, a kind of nice foundation. Then you walk into my life and raise me to the sky. And then for the actual chorus, you're moving into a new key. Just that chordal movement through that, that it's not just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, that you're adding the tools that one would expect in a musical of we can move up a key. Any thoughts about how you're making those decisions of where it's going to do that? So, I mean, there is a thing about with musical songs, perhaps more so than a standard, like a pop song, mm -hmm. it's through compose because of, obviously your, your train of thought is following a particular process. It's important that the music kind of reflects that and the intensity grows. With that particular song, you know, I wanted the intensity to grow. So initially, when, when the orchestra gets comes in, I mean, that's your first level up. And then you've got the strings chugging away and all the rest of it. But actually, the drums don't come in. It's about halfway through the song. And all of a sudden, up no, you go again. And it suddenly it's got that real kind of heavy beat behind it. And then, you know, again, the keys where things kind of resolve. You know, you've got quite a minor feel. And the minor reflects the whole kind of frustration that's going on. But occasionally it breaks out into these little major moments where, you know, he's sort of celebrating how he feels as well. So it's kind of all those things are kind of working together. Mm -hmm. But it's a natural, I don't sit there and it kind of comes quite naturally now. I don't, I don't know whether there was a point where I ever had to think about it that much, it, but it, it kind of feels natural. It, to me, it's like painting the words. You create the right sound. Well, shall I say, I create what I believe is the right sound to put across what I'm trying to say. And so those kind of elements are just all part of my lifetime of writing music, I guess. And you could learn as you go. So, but this one still has in that chorus, failed to share one simple truth. So it seems I must endure the secret of my heart, which, and sometimes you actually finish the thought and sometimes it moves on to something else, Yeah, but it's still got a hook. Oh yeah. But it seems That's like, so, yeah. I mean, is there any kind of difference between, so I was, for instance, just watching a YouTube you were doing this live duet thing where you were singing It's All in the Mind, one of your earlier, one of your Shadowlands tunes, which that's got a definite hook, you know, such the kind of thing that would just maybe, uh, you know, I write some of my tunes where I'm just kind of walking around and humming something. And if something actually sticks <laughs> without my going near an instrument, if something sticks for multiple days, like, okay, I guess I have to write that as a song. Yeah. And that's where some of the best hooks come from. Here, it sounds like you just, it seems like you produce so much music, you know, for one of these musicals. Do you feel like that, well, okay, there are some actual songs in there and some of it is merely functional. In other words, it has to be there for the plot. There is an element where you have to, obviously, it has to be there for the plot. But I do like to think that there isn't a wasted note in there. I really try very hard to make everything count. The funny thing is, with hooky stuff, with the kind of lighter more catchy stuff that I struggle with. So, so uh, some of the kind of, uh, well, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, the more kind of typical musically songs. Very often, I, well, I've developed a technique now. What I will tend to do is I'll write those at night 
and I will leave them and I will review them again the next day. Because what I was tending to do is I'd write something and I'd listen to it. I thought, no, that's just too hooky, too cheesy, too cheap, and I'll throw it away. So I, I discovered that the best way to do it was actually to do it the night before, then leave it alone, don't throw it away, even though I, by, by then I'm sort of thinking, <laughs> no, this can't be any good. And I'll leave it till the next day and something happens usually. And I listen to the next day and think, well, actually, no, it sort of works. And I'll, I'll be brave enough to leave it in. I'm not very good at doing simple on that sort of level. I, I kind of feel a bit nervous sometimes when I, I, I'm sort of doing something and I think, oh, God, it's a bit simple. But sometimes that's exactly what it needs. And the duet we're talking about isn't actually an example of what I'm talking about, really. But there are some songs there and I just think, well, you've got to have faith in simple sometimes. It's serving a different purpose that if you're playing something with a band and actually that's transition to our third song. So we wanted to do something by Arena. You'd picked uh, the Tinderbox from your 2011, The Seventh Degree of Separation. You know, I had mm. asked for something a little older, and so this is at least a decade plus back. And, you know, this is only four minutes. It's not one of your, your epic, epic songs, but it is the finale to the whole album. And it's definitely got some things in common with the song we just heard in terms of the structure, that it's not just a simple, you know, it's more of an epic, like here's verse after verse after verse, as opposed to it's what we call a builder, really. I mean, it's, it kind of relies on repetition and it, you know, it goes round its circle and round again. But obviously each time it goes round, it gets a little bit bigger. And that I've, I've subtly kind of increased the pace very, very slightly as well throughout in a couple of places. But it's got that kind of, yeah, it just grows and grows and grows. And I, I do love those kind of songs. I, I love those kind of, that kind of music. You know, the principle is the same as when you get the Gazaladra, for example, uh, Rossini, where it's a dun 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 and it grows until the other end is you know, it's kind of like massive music going on, full orchestration. The principle is the same. It starts off quite simple, it's just voice and piano. And then gradually, and then drums come in with the big beat. And before you know it, you've got your power chords, you've got the mellotrons, you've got, you know, backing vocals. It's the kitchen sink. And that, I do enjoy doing songs like that. They're good fun and they're very satisfying. And again, you can get a good hook out of it as well. It all began with a single spark.
the soul If only you were here right now I could finally tell you I know So we start off with this piano riff. Any thoughts about coming up with something like that? Is that the start of the composition process? Or how does that even distinguish from the many other? Yeah, in that particular case, I kind of knew what it was I wanted to do. I wanted this building song. And I just thought, well, you know, the interesting thing is just start with a kind of... Just, you know, just start with a kind of just a simple chord and just mm-hmm. think, well, what happens now? Dun, 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 dun. And I thought, well, okay, make sure the chord progression is quite slow, even though when the song builds up and everything, you're going to get that sort of forward motion. But for me, I think it did began with me just probably humming away at a piano, to be honest, initially. There wouldn't, I probably had no lyrics or anything at that stage, just a kind of a feel for something. And then it would have grown from there. Well, it's interesting, you know, that we started off the whole thing with what is really the opening theme from Prophecy, from Stranger on a Train, and it's got that similar, you know, if I was looking to, uh, when I was looking around, okay, what's something I can play for the intro that sort of shows off your chops? Well, like, there's plenty of that, of course, but the fact that, no, sort of the song comes first, and it can start simply, and it doesn't have to be this prog in quotes. I guess you had mentioned earlier that you sort of discovered that you were doing prog at some point, and then got presumably educated about the you know what that means and your rick wakeman connections and those sorts of things like where were you at with this band by 2011 that you've been going for a decade plus and then shadowlands you know so you're building on a lot of usually with i don't want to say usually but the progress of prog in the 70s is kind of you know predictable that you can sort of oh this is one of those bands from 1974 as opposed to this is one of those bands from 1970 and by 1976 if they hadn't gone all pop, then they've made a left turn. But now we're at decades later from that history where people were discovering and eventually, I guess, discarding or trading in for 80s, whatever was happening there. How do you even see what you do as, is there any relation consciously to that enterprise? For me, it's all about songwriting. I don't ever consider whether it's prog or anything else. I don't, I don't sit there and think, right, what we need is a Mellotron. A double neck and a moon. <laughs> uh, I never sit there and think that way. I just write songs, which is why I write songs that work in prog bands and which is why I write songs that I think work in musicals. For me, it's about the song. It's never been about trying to demonstrate how brilliant a keyboard player I am or anything like that. It's all about just trying to find the flavors and the atmospheres and transferring some kind of emotion to people with the song. So 
I've never really worried too much about the categorization because I think other people do that for you. I mean, I get told, you know, oh, yeah, well, you sound like, you know, or you're, you're doing the kind of music you do is this. Well, okay, if that's what it is, then terrific. But um, my attitude very much is just, um, you know, I like to write songs. It falls into the prog world because I like to write songs that have got some kind of depth and, mm-hmm. and uh, sort of size to them. And for my money, if, it, if a song needs 10 minutes to do what it needs to do, then that's what I'll do. So that's where the, the prog element in and, and the kind of slightly more orchestrated approach to how the music comes together. You know, I don't think I've ever, I'm just trying to think, to the best of my knowledge, I've never created a song as a result of a jam session, for example. Everything mm. is, by my standards, is composed. I've never done that sort of thing in all the bands I've ever played and never did that. We always, you know, deliver the song. There we go, guys. Let's learn it. It was never a kind of, hey, that sounds good. Let's put that bit with that riff over there. And never did all that stuff. So that's quite a classical approach, if for want of a pompous way sure. of putting it. But that's, but nevertheless, that's. So I don't try and categorize myself. I don't try and fit into something. I make it. It's about the song. So when I'm playing, you know, those sort of just the G minor chord. What I'm not doing is doing a load of fast arpeggios to prove that I can do a load <laughs> of fast arpeggios because it doesn't need that. Basically, I like Steve Hackett's way of putting it. Is it should be called permissive rock, not progressive rock. It's just it allows you. <laughs> It's a format that where there's, you know, people expect a degree of theatricality, I don't know, geekery or whatever you want to put it, that lets you, if I want to write a thing about Beowulf, damn it, I'm going to write a thing about Beowulf, there, that there's no pretense. I guess in terms of being prog, what I saw as sort of would drive King Crimson in their ever-changing is that actually trying to be on a cutting edge, but it sounds like, no, 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 that's not, there's something inimical to songwriting is actually supposed to be expressive, not experimental i don't know are you are you still trying to like throw in something to challenge yourself experimentally to not repeat yourself as you go well i think that uh first of all i think funnily enough the prog rock as a genre is one of the least progressive types <laughs> of music you could get people don't like change a lot of the sort of fans we have would get very upset if we strayed too far from what they visualize as the path that we're supposed to be on as far as stressing ourselves i mean i i think yeah we do I mean, like with Arena, every time we make an album, we always try and make a kind of a, a sort of a, a step forward. Mm-hmm. How we decide what that means, I, I couldn't really tell you, but we never try and make the same album again. Now, I'm sure people might say that we've done it. I don't know. Or maybe, oh, that sounds like that song. But that's not how we go about it. We do listen to other things that are going on. We try and sort of source ideas from, you know, things that we think are, oh, that's, that's a really good good idea or a good sound or a good approach and we'll, why don't we try that i mean for example the tinderbox the song in question yeah i, I heard it it's um the incidental music in um 28 days later or 28 days uh, 28 weeks after or whatever it's called one of those two zombie films sure there's a fantastic kind of guitar dun, 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 similar kind of idea and I just thought, yeah, I'd, I'd love the feel of that, the kind of way it's just moving forward relentlessly and sort of growing. And so that's what inspired me to do that particular song. So we, we're always listening to other stuff. And I'd like to think that we are kind of, I wouldn't call us, we're not experimental. We're not trying to be. I do think we try and push ourselves in, in various ways. Well, even just calling the band Arena, and that comes up specifically in this song, that when, when you get to the we're a spark of the tinderbox from the tinderbox and it you're adding the is it just two of you singing how many how many people sing in the in the choruses when it gets fat here 
I think probably you've got your lead vocal, probably double tracked him, and then you've probably got a couple of us singing backing vocals to it, yeah. And then, you know, it's getting faster, and you have actual crowd sounds on here. So there's something self-conscious about, yeah, can you say about that moment of breaking the fourth wall of theatricality that we're going to bring in crowd noises in this? Yeah, it almost felt, I don't know, when I was recording it, I could almost feel this song being done in a stadium or arena or something. And it just felt like it needed that crowd support. There was no other reason than that. I just thought, well, let's have it. <laughs> in case we never got to do the arena, at least it's on the album. What was your thought even just naming the band that in the first place, as opposed to Shadowlands that has, no, it's, this is, you know, at least connotes that this is going to be arena rock, whatever else it is. <laughs> we struggled so hard. I remember um, Mick and I chatting away in the pub for hours on end trying to come. And the trouble is, whenever you think of a name, it never sounds good initially. It never works. And then you, you start, you know, you have a couple of drinks and you move into the most ridiculous names as well. I think we just kept coming back to Arena. I'll tell you why we, we thought of this. It's because we had an idea for the front cover of the very first album before we came up with the idea for the name. And the front cover was this person in the, in the, the Lions Arena, you know, a gladiatorial thing, like the front cover of Songs of the Lions Cage. And we kept saying, yeah, so he's in his arena and everyone is looking in on what he's doing and da da da. And it's Arena, this and Arena. And eventually we just thought, well, Maybe she just called the band Arena. And it was as simple as that, really. It just seemed to kind of work. And it works in two levels, because Arena, obviously, but all, Arena, I think, unless I'm wrong, is Spanish for sand. Okay. Which also was in keeping with the, with the kind of flavor of that. So, yeah, just in the end, we just thought, oh, well, that's, you know, that sounds right. So we did it. And any thought about, you know, creating this band as a, we're going to find a lead vocalist. And in fact, I, I saw that that switch during the tenure of the band, as opposed to just having you sing lead on everything or, but you're still writing the lyrics for just about everything, right? Yeah. I do all the lyrics for arena. Yeah. So we get through more singers and spinal tap got through drummers. Don't I? The band tends to go in phases. And in many ways, the, the vocalists represent the phases the band went in. And we've managed to get through a few, few singers Damien at the moment, Damien Wilson is the singer, and uh, he has yet to do a gig because he joined and the pandemic kicked in. So we're still, well, hopefully we'll be on tour in October, which will be his first chance to actually sing the music. And we've got, you know, the album that we've worked on, it's, it's all done. and It'll be out later this year. I mean, it sounds fantastic, I've got to say. I know I would say that, but nevertheless, I'm very pleased with the result of that. It's a very different sound to the, perhaps the one before, so in keeping with what we always try and achieve. There's a lot more heavyweight sort of backing vocals going on in this one as well, which I like. It's a very vocal sounding album, which is great. So I look forward to hearing the final mixes of that. And I do look forward to that coming out as well. So is that a challenge in terms of marketing or anything that, or is this just the band is a unit and it has its sound and people sort of are looking for your flavor in there and mix flavor, you know, that, yeah, is it, has it been a problem to have multiple vocalists or it just, it was a problem when Paul Wrightson, who was the singer who was on the visitor album, which is probably our best selling album. And at that particular point, we were still a relatively new band and our graph was sort of going up very rapidly because of that particular lineup and the touring. So when he went, I always said, you know, that that's going to set us back a couple of years, I think. And I think it did. And then we had to kind of rebuild because that was the first time that we'd had a big lineup change. And, you know, people like, again, progressive people don't like change. But after that, you know, the other singers who've come and gone, 
yeah, some people say, oh, I'm a Rob Soden, but I have Paul, <laughs> you know, I like Paul Manzi. Uh, there are phases in the band's history where some people prefer others, but generally speaking, it hasn't been as damaging as that very first time was. I think people have sort of understood that, you know, there are just times when we will make a change and that's the nature of the band. The last change was Paul Manzi leaving and he's a fantastic singer. Damien coming in, he's a fantastic singer. We had a lot of people bemoaning, you know, we announced, I said, let's do it in two parts. So we announced Paul Manzi leaving and we had, I don't know, an awful lot of people said, oh no. And then when we announced Damien, it was kind of, woohoo, yeah, great. And sort of, you know, literally, I think that was the largest reaction in terms of number of likes and comments I think that we've ever had um, so um, you know for us that was great so it's yeah people cope with our changes I think now is the fact that the band has lasted so long is it sort of like I think of it in terms of sports positions like you know you've established that you need a third baseman and so whoever does it they're kind of going to be doing you know they'll add their own flavor to it but like this is their so you're not you're not going to get somebody who's like we decided to get someone with a very low voice now who can't sing any of our old songs. Like, you're not going to do that. It's got to fill the the gap. The same goes with any other instrumentalist, that if you replace, you, you have to have somebody that can competently play all the old stuff. So probably it's not going to be like a crazy jazz guitarist that you've added now or something that is wants to add a John McLaughlin, Pat Metheny flavor to the band or something. Anybody we bring in would be in keeping with the band, mm-hmm. definitely. Uh, it would, you know, they'll have their own style, they'll bring their own element, but it'll be not something kind of wildly different. No, that's true. How does the dynamics of the band and building a band over time compare to, I got to put a unit together for, you know, to back my, and in fact, fill out vocally your new musical? Like, is that just a wonderful one-off thing? Or are you try- it sounds like you're trying to keep, you know, you mentioned some of the same people from your bands, like keep as many known quantities as possible. I do that. So I, there are people I work with. And if I, if I know and trust them, I will mm. use them in all sorts of different ways. Absolutely right. And no, I enjoy doing the musicals and I enjoy doing the projects and bringing people in. The beauty of that is, of course, you haven't got to keep them tied to the same thing. With a band, it's all about trying to keep people doing the same thing, pulling in the same direction for years on end. Personally, I tend to find that a bit more stressful. I'm at my best probably when I'm working on my own. Are there are members of Arena or of your other bands that are that are in four different projects and you're kind of having to fight for their time? Or is it kind of... Yeah, I mean, there'll always be, mm-hmm. yes. I mean, with Arena, all of the people in it, then the band are pretty busy. I mean, you've got Damien Wilson, he sings in all sorts of projects. John Mitchell, I mean, he's just frost and... Uh, all sorts of other things as well. So, yes, we always have to plan things quite a long way away. I mean, you know, tours are usually at least a year ahead and we work out a strategy to tie in with an album or what have you just so that we can make sure that everyone books up at the same time. Uh, what we would never be able to do in Arena, or very unlikely, would if someone said, hey, by the way, guys, I've just got this slot come up in, uh, in the middle of July for a fantastic you know, appearance in a festival. Would you like to do it? Chances are very unlikely that we'd be able to because somebody somewhere in the band would be busy, probably. So it's a tough one. I mean, has that been the source of some of the lineup changes of... Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, you know, like I say, most of the lineup changes have been to do with singers, and they they just uh, kind of go in a different direction, Mm -hmm. really. Uh, You know, just lose interest or or don't want to do that or don't want to be held down to doing arena because they want to do something different. You know, there's nothing too amazing about it. It's it's, it's understandable. Sure. And I always say to when people start to do this thing, they kind of make, you know, usually starts with a few mumbles. And I say, look, you know, you don't want to do this, go. It's okay. 
choose your moment as in go when we've still got time to replace mm-hmm. you for an album or a tour. But if you don't want to do it, go. No one's holding a gun to your head. It's up to them. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Let's uh, wrap up by just introducing the last thing. So another album from 2021, Dark Fables by you and Oliver Wakeman, which is what your third album together, right? Uh, the song I, I had picked, uh, Descent Into Madness. Yes. I mean, Oliver and I worked together years ago, actually. It's been quite a gap. We did Jabberwocky, which is the first album we did together. And then we did Hound of the Baskervilles. And we had a lot of fun doing it. We've got some interesting artists in. Again, because we worked together, it was a very different kind of cocktail, if you like, mm-hmm. of styles and what have you. We had a lot of fun making those. Sometimes albums can be quite serious or stressful or you know, financially worrying and all the rest of it. But whenever the two times we did those albums, we did have a lot of fun making. They were not stressful. And it was kind of weird. We were, you know, obviously, we went off in our own directions, doing our own stuff. You know, for years. And then Oliver contacted me and said, We had this opportunity to do kind of like a box set and we needed that third album. So we dug up all the demos and old bits of material and so put this album together. And I said to him, You know, well, it's amazing. And we, we really, we should do this album properly, you know, as in record Frankenstein, this, this album. But of course, you know, it's all about budget. And that's why we did what we did because it just seemed at least people would hear the kind of ideas we had and where we were headed. But it was good, and it was very nice to have that opportunity to do, so I was very happy with that. All right, here it is, A Descent into Madness. Let's go. 
Thanks so much to Clive. A very meaty career to chew on there. You can learn more about it, hear more tunes at clivenolan.net. My next episode is an interview with Wesley Stace, a.k.a. John Wesley Harding, wonderful singer-songwriter, and one of my formative musical influences, Bob Mould from Husker Du and Sugar and the Daily Show theme song and many solo albums. I was able to talk to him, so please make sure you are subscribed directly to this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or the podcast app of your choice, so you get those interviews promptly when they come out. And as always, I would appreciate your support at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic in which case you can get the ad-free feeds, sometimes get the episodes a little early. You always get the notes that go along with my episodes, mapping out the songs with the lyrics written out and everything like that. I should also mention if you use Spotify that there's a Spotify playlist that I update on a very regular basis that has all the songs covered in these episodes. So great if you want to see in advance what I'm going to be covering or even just thinking about covering, you can get that from the Spotify link at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. While you're at our webpage, look in the upper right corner for a little widget to help you leave a nice rating and review for the podcast. Finally, you can reach out to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com to suggest guests, to volunteer yourself as a guest, or make any comments you'd like about the show. Love to hear from the audience. Hope you're all doing well. In any case, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.